Hi, it's Chris. A few reminders. First, have you signed up for my free newsletter at chrisreback.com? It brightens your Sunday afternoon with my thoughts, show notes, extra questions with guests, and more. You can sign up at chrisreback.com. Next, if you like the podcast and the newsletter, how about supporting the effort? Become a member of Chris Reback's Conversations. Members get invitations to submit questions for upcoming podcast guests, exclusive early access to select podcasts, access for limited copies of recent guest books, a signed copy of my book, You Won, Now What? How Democracy Works from City Hall to the White House. Most importantly, you'll be supporting a podcast that I hope you enjoy. Other benefits will be added in the future, and we offer two tiers of membership, patron and superstar. Choose the one that's right for you at chrisreback.com slash membership. Finally, thank you to everyone who takes the time to rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Several more of you did, and it makes a big difference. So if you like these conversations, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to iTunes, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. You know the parallel ask, though. If you don't like the conversations, well, thanks for still listening, but please just forget that whole rate and review thing. So three items for the checklist. Sign up for the newsletter, become a member, and please rate. Thanks, and now let's get to the podcast. I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. One thing is sure about the extraordinary once-in-a-generation Senate Judiciary Committee hearing last week. There was a lot of anger in the room. Judge Brett Kavanaugh, angry. Senator Lindsey Graham, angry. But it might have been the anger outside the room that changed everything. You've seen the video. Two women somehow got hold of Senator Jeff Flake in an elevator, and they unleashed. Look at me when I'm talking to you, one shouted. Don't look away from me. For many, watching that scene felt uncomfortable. Not just the cornering of a U.S. senator, the scene of women getting mad in public. But for others, including author Rebecca Tracer, the scene was a remarkable, appropriate, and much-needed display of what they already knew. Women have been angry for a long time, in fact, very likely as long as there have been women. Most of the time, as Traster wrote in Sunday's New York Times, quote, female anger is discouraged, repressed, ignored, swallowed. That time, Traster argues in her landmark must-read new book, Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger, that time should be fully behind us. Keep your eyes open. Something massive and important is happening again in America. The role and impact of women's anger is evolving. The anger has always been there, of course. Even before Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Stanton and the women's suffrage movement, there was Abigail Adams and others. We saw it in the 60s and 70s. We saw Anita Hill. But something new has been developing through movements like Me Too and new voices like Emma Gonzalez. And now, certainly, through Dr. Christine Blasey Ford. A note. I spoke with Rebecca last week, before the hearings occurred. But as you'll hear, if you want to understand what's happening, where we've been, and where we're going, Rebecca Traster is the one to explain. Before we begin, though, I want to remind you about our show's terrific sponsor, The Cook Political Report, and a special offer for our listeners to get an 18% discount off all subscriptions. You know already, people who want to stay ahead of the curve turn to the Cook Political Report, and with good reason. For 30 years, the report has nailed the nation's most important election outcomes and political trends. People who make it their business to know politics make it their business to subscribe to the Cook Political Report. 
And for Political Wire listeners, a special offer. You can use the code POLITICALWIRE to get 18% off all subscriptions. Just go to cookpolitical.com and use the code POLITICALWIRE, that's one word, POLITICALWIRE, to sign up and get 18% off all subscriptions. That's cookpolitical.com, code POLITICALWIRE. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Rebecca Traster. Rebecca, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. I'm very happy to be here. So I know that I'm supposed to start with a question. That's how these conversations and interviews go. But I've got to tell you, I read a lot of books, and most of them are really good. But every once in a while, there's a book that does something more that changes the way people see the things that they've seen their whole life. And I assume that that's maybe one of your goals, certainly a hope. But that's what your book does, in my opinion, Rebecca. I think it will change the way um, people see women and rage and society and revolution and where we are as a country. And if it doesn't, well, I don't think that people might be reading it closely enough. Oh, well, that's, that's an extraordinarily flattering compliment. And, you know, you saying that that's the goal, that, that would be a very, you know, kind of highfalutin goal. But what I would say is that the process of writing this book did the same thing for me. It altered the way that I see the country's history and its politics. Um, that was true as, as a writer and as a, as a reporter and a researcher and a reader. And the part about you, which was fascinating and came, you got to get, you know, sorry, there's a spoiler alert here. You got to get to the actual very end of your book to learn this. It, it rejuvenate might not be the right word, but it energized you, right? And and you came to a conclusion and a realization about anger that is contrary to just about everything we hear. So so what is anger and why is it good? And then I want to talk to you about current events and life and society and everything else. But but let's just start by talking about you and anger. <laughs> Wait, what, what, right. What, and what, I want to... Yeah, please. I should make clear, as you say, that the, that the book is not about my own anger, right? No, I have no, no, a couple no. of passages where I write in the first person. But what I write in the conclusion that you're referring to is that when I started writing this book, and I wrote it with the intention of valuing women's political anger, right? I, I went into it wanting to, to some degree, reclaim rage as a politically catalytic force. So I was, by that measure, pro-anger coming into writing this book. And I wrote it very quickly. That wasn't the idea. I was going to take a couple of years with it. But then women's anger was having such a profound social and political impact on the world around us that I felt it was more important to get it done quickly to kind of capture the moment. So I wound up writing it over the course of four months, which is very fast, at least by my standards. It, it's, in, it's insane by any author's standards. That's insane. It, it, it was like I was in a fugue state. So um, I started writing the book, and when I wrote even the introduction, I went in order. The book is start to finish. I just wrote from the beginning to the end, mm. also totally unusual for me. But I wrote in my introduction at first that I understood that while anger was politically valuable and consequential, of course it could be bad for us. Too, having too much anger in us was bad for us. I had fully absorbed, even as a person whose intellectual project was valuing rage, and women's rage. I had on some level absorbed the notion that there was something fundamentally corrosive, physically corrosive or unhealthy about women's anger. And that those messages are sent to us in really well-intentioned ways, I think, by lots of people. The idea it makes our blood pressure high, we grind our teeth if you're angry, who wants to live with anger inside them all the time? There's, and, and that comes from, from 
good, important sources. There are progressive, um, you know, progressive women in the book I quote saying anger, I don't want to have too much anger in me. It, it, you know, it upsets my stomach. Um, but I had this very unusual experience of having to write very quickly and write out of rage and take the rage of other women seriously. And it was, I just realized that it was one of the most physically, um, one of the healthiest periods that I could remember. I was sleeping well, I was eating well, I was physically energetic. Um, I felt great. And I include this story and I want to make very clear, not as some self-help tip, like ladies tap into your anger, you know, it's great for your metabolism. I included it because I did think it was important to rebut this commonly absorbed assumption that there's something about anger that is fundamentally unhealthy. I don't know that that's true based on my individual and extremely unusual experience. I think that the holding in of rage, the bottling up of rage, the swallowing of rage, the feeling bad that we feel rage, those things probably contribute to all the very real physical manifestations of stress, you know, uh, blood pressure and teeth grinding and all of that stuff. But I also wanted to be really clear that in pointing out that my lived experience of sort of being enraged and getting to express that rage and having it taken seriously and being paid for it. This is such an unusual experience that I'm not recommending to other women out there, go be mad. It's great for you because part of what this book seeks to identify and make clear is that the world holds incredibly steep penalties on women's anger. Women aren't supposed to, women aren't supposed to be angry, are they? Right. And if they are, they're punished for it. They're marginalized. They're told that they're being hysterical, that they're irrational, that they're not thinking straight. If you are angry about the way you're being treated at work, you know, I, one of the reasons I would never just tell people, go be angry, you can lose your job. You can be denied a promotion because you're the angry woman. And there are so many social and, and structural aspersions cast on women who are disruptive, angry, cranky, um, whiners. I mean, this is how women, women's anger is turned. If you are, of course, a woman, woman of color and you're angry about being pulled over for no reason, expressing that anger puts you at risk of arrest, incarceration, or death in this country. So part of that recognition, I wanted to rebut the assumption that anger is in itself bad for you. I no longer really believe that. I believe that the repression of and the, and the penalties put on anger create circumstances in which feeling it and keeping it bottled up is bad for women physically. But what we need to change is not all of us just going out and expressing our anger because it's very rare that you have an opportunity where you're remunerated for it and somebody's asking you. We have to change the way we listen to other people's anger. We have to be curious about it, about going to women who are angry and saying why, and then listening to what they say, taking it seriously, valuing it as an important and catalytic political force. So, so let's talk about that political force. Your book's subtitle is The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger. What is the revolution? What stage of the revolution are we at? What, what do you see going on out there? The promised revolution, which, by the way, is something that Abigail Adams promises in a letter, in the famous letter to her husband, where what we typically hear is, remember the ladies. She also says, basically, if you don't represent us, we are determined to foment a rebellion. Okay? So we are a couple centuries into this rebellion that she promised. And um, 
the, the use of the term revolution is intentional in part because I make reference to the anger of the founders, which we fetishize in this country. We understand the give me liberty or give me death, um, you know, throw tea in Boston Harbor. Yep. We understand those expressions of anger to be revolutionary. But that same kind of disruptive anger from the women who, in the process of founding the new nation, were disenfranchised um, and and in many cases enslaved, um, that that anger was going to disrupt the new power structure. And so it was quelled, discouraged, shushed, not taken seriously. And so part of this revolution is a long brewing one. We're in the middle of an explosive iteration of it. And where you want to trace it as beginning, I think, is very much up for debate. We can look when it comes to Me Too that is now, um, you know, made itself manifest in the interruption of a Supreme Court confirmation. We can extend that back very easily to 1991 and Anita Hill's testimony against Clarence Thomas, claiming that he sexually harassed her. Um, that, of course, was was an expression of resistance um, that was not successful in the short term. Clarence Thomas got confirmed to the court. But the conversation about sexual harassment that Anita Hill um, was participating in and, and had such power over shaping is undergirds the contemporary Me Too movement. The same token, um, Tarana Burke led the Me Too movement in, two, in 2006. That was not a hashtag campaign. It was a movement to talk about the pervasiveness of sexual assault and its impact on women and girls, especially women of girls and girls of color. That foregrounds where we are. Then we get to the post-2016 moment, and it's the Women's March, which people didn't quite take seriously, even though it was the single biggest one-day political demonstration in this country's history. And yet it wasn't taken very seriously politically, and I doc document that lack of seriousness in my book. But then the next week, there are protests against the Muslim ban, the, the Donald Trump's travel ban. There are women who start to sign up to run for office in historic numbers. There's the women's agitation that results in the in, in not repealing the Affordable Care Act. Then there's Me Too. There are the teacher strikers. There are the immigration protests. Now there is the, the interruption of the Kavanaugh hearings. So we are in a stage of a revolution that has perhaps extended over centuries, but is at a particular moment in which it is truly disrupting the power structures and how they work. And, and what's bringing it all to a head? I mean, you talk about the very briefly, and I think at the beginning, the, the role of technology and everything in society is getting disintermediated. And you, you have you talk about the the, the lineage and the, the various uh, protests and, and actions that have occurred kind of since 2016. But you tie it as well. You, you, you bring in uh, Occupy Wall Street and you bring in some mm -hmm. of the movements between 2006 um, and, and 2016. From a political point of view, and, and you really you, you focus on the politics of anger and the, the, mm -hmm. the, the, the way that anger can influence our political movements. Was Trump the linchpin? Was was that election? What 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 role would it have happened? Would we be talking right now without Trump? We would be having a very different conversation without Trump. I think that there was anger that would have been met. if Hillary Clinton had been president. There would have been a tremendous anger and resistance to her from the left. There already was with her as a candidate. Um, there were eruptions of political anger during the Obama administration. Um, Occupy Wall Street was one of them. Um, Black Lives Matter 
was one of them, the yep. beginning of a, of a transformative movement. Um, the slut walks uh, were another example. And from the right, because I write about how women's anger isn't always progressive, there was the Tea Party, which in many cases was led by or deeply influenced by angry women on the right. So there was anger bubbling up. But there was, there was also the countervailing message. There is a strategic reason why a white capitalist patriarchy wants to quell the angry voices of its majority. Um, those angry voices were coming from many different perspectives, many different directions. But there is an investment in why the powerful want to silence the angry dissent of the less powerful. And one of the mechanisms by which we do this is to say, no, 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 we've made all the progress. There's nothing to be angry about. It's disqualifying the anger of the underrepresented or the subjugated um, by saying it's invalid. Look, everything was fixed after the civil rights movement, after the women's movement, after the gay rights movement, after, after gay marriage, things are all fine. And, and the election of Barack Obama contributed to that false narrative, the idea that we could now elect a black president. And then, of course, the, the ascendancy of Hillary Clinton, who was talked about as being uh, inevitable, that cement, that was also worked to symbolically say, look, we can have any kind of president we want. We're going to have a black president. And then, of course, the inevitable next president is going to be a woman. And there wasn't there was a way in which mainstream messaging just sort of accepted this. So, so you have nothing to be angry about. You have nothing to be angry about. And in fact, the anger was building in reaction to the perception that that non-white, non-men in America were gaining some new share of power. And that's some of the anger that you see happening that undergirds Trump's ascendancy. So what happens when Donald Trump wins is that that myth is shattered. Hmm. It becomes all the things we were told we had no reason to be angry about because Hillary had all the power. And Donald Trump's misogyny, racism, and xenophobia would be disqualifying because we were beyond that in the United States. When he wins, he, he makes, that makes visible that that was always a lie. And that what that lie had functioned to do was quell a lot of the disruption and fury that perhaps would have been useful before the election. But we were all swallowing a line that there was nothing really to be angry about. You know, you, you quote that Steve Bannon line, um, the time has come, women are going to take charge of society, and they couldn't juxtapose a better villain than Trump. And, and to your point, right. he, you know, he, he serves as, you know, just a, a significant catalyst. But as the book makes clear, and it really is a historical view going back, you know, even, I guess, before Abigail Adams, uh, you know, back to mm -hmm. the, 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 the Brank, I guess it is, or even before that. Do I have that right? The Brank, isn't that what it's called? Yes, the yeah. brank yeah. Yeah. is yes. a phenomenally interesting and horrifying device that was used to clamp yeah. shut um, the mouths of women, querulous women. Yeah, it just, I, I mean, I, I had never heard of that before, but it, it brought to physical light the, you know, metaphorical shutting up of women that you you, you write about and, and the, the, you know, the way that... Um, anger in women um, and, and that use of, of rage as a political or a motivating, for, motivating force um, does get shut down throughout history. I, I want to ask you uh, two political uh, areas. One, um, we're talking right now, uh, it's about a week before your book comes out, and for context, it's two days before 
uh, Christine Ford is scheduled to uh, testify before the Senate Judiciary Committee. To paraphrase what you wrote yesterday in The Cut, which is one of the places where you write, um, we're recording this conversation, now I'm quoting you, not knowing if by the time it's published, Brett Kavanaugh will still be the Supreme Court nominee or whether more people will have come forward with more stories of assault or degradation, or whether Chuck Grassley or Donald Trump will have doubled down on their inhumanity, or whether there will be more evidence put forth disc- discrediting the women coming forward with stories about Brett Kavanaugh or, or other men currently engaged in his defense. Then you added, though, but what I do know with absolute assurance is that we are living through a period in which women are enacting crucial, swift, large-scale social and political change. It, is this, and, and you can't look into the future, I, I, at least I don't think you can because you probably would have written a book about it, but is that where we are? Is, is this, how big yeah. is this moment that we are sitting uh, just in front of? It depends on the degree to which you believe the moment is defined by its immediate success versus the long-term process. I especially now at this stage of my work and having looked at the history and the way that I've looked at it, I tend to see this process that we're in as being very long-term, which doesn't mean that I don't want immediate results, right? I want my, my, I don't want Brett Kavanaugh to be confirmed to the Supreme court. I don't want Donald Trump to confirm somebody at all. who's going to enact his ideas about um, the gutting of collective bargaining and voting rights and the, the stripping women of their reproductive autonomy. I want to see Democrats take back the House and the Senate, right? I want all these short, relatively short-term wins. However, I see the process that we're in the midst of as not being defined by whether or not those wins happen. I see, for example, this period that we're in, it, it not only matters that Kavanaugh's confirmation has been delayed, It matters that as part of the delay, we have been offered a view of the of the contemporary Republican Party's willingness to defend and disregard stories from women about assault Mm -hmm. and degradation. There has been made visible to us some of the connections between policy, for instance, around abortion or women's reproductive autonomy and the, the callow disregard for for women's claims of assault or harm or violence, right? These things are being made visible, and that's altering the politics. Millions of women and men are watching this, and the Republican Party is revealing things which may have seemed obvious to some people who are already ideologically secure about what they understood was happening. But it's making visible a lot of stuff that the Republican Party has taken pains to hide about the sort of disregard for women's value, women's autonomy, women's life, and the connection to how women are actually treated, whether they're trusted, whether they're listened to, whether they matter to the process. This is being revealed as we speak, and a lot of, it's making an impression on a lot of people. By the time this airs, it's possible that the Senate will have voted to confirm Brett Kavanaugh. But people's ideas about politics and, and progressive politics versus reactionary and right-wing politics will have been altered by this process. And that matters. That's why it mattered. If you look back at 1991, Anita Hill, the immediate result of that was lost with long-term consequences. Clarence Thomas was confirmed to the Supreme Court despite compelling and persuasive testimony by Anita Hill that he had sexually harassed her in a serialized 
aggressive way, despite the fact that there were other women who were willing to back her up, he was nonetheless confirmed to the Supreme Court. That has lasting and damaging consequences. You can connect Clarence Thomas's role on the Supreme Court over the past 27 years to the gutting of the Voting Rights Act and the passage of Citizens United, which paves the way for a Trump presidency. So there are terrible consequences. It was, by many measures, a grave and lasting loss for progressive politics and for feminism. However, the process of her telling her story, of changing the way we think about and understand sexual harassment as a kind of harm done to women as a class, um, our popular understanding of what harassment entails, that had long-term consequences that, again, brings us to this moment and to Me Too, but also the next year produced a historic number of women running for office, in part because what had been made visible to them was that the Judiciary Committee grilling this African-American woman about sexual harassment had been made up of all white men. And so the next year in 1992, you see what was then called the year of the woman. It's the election of four women to the Senate and 23 to the House. And those were historic numbers. It included the first black woman ever elected to the Senate. So there, that's an example of where I see that it's a loss in the short term, but the gain is a far longer term gain. And that's the kind of moment we're in. And maybe we'll win the short term, too. Maybe Kavanaugh will be withdrawn or he won't be confirmed. And I don't know that as we speak here today. Maybe the Democrats are going to win a lot of seats in the midterms. Maybe they're not. But I think the process that we're going through is changing our politics in a way that's going to extend into our future. And on that point, to to close, you you just mentioned the previous year of the woman, politically, one of them at least, uh, back in 1992 and the four women coming into the Senate and all of them in the House. We now have hundreds, thousands, women running all over the country and for for all sort for for offices all up and down the line as you point out in the book i think you you quote a stat it's still only 22% of the available offices or something like that i think you 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 identify but the fact is we women one of the outputs of uh the you know the the rage that you have documented is women are running for office if there is a blue wave a lot of women will win um what mm-hmm. What change, and I don't necessarily mean this quantify, I'm not asking you to tick off a laundry list of, of policy changes, but, but from a bigger picture, because that's where your book goes, um, what will change if that happens? Well, in, in this case, um, m- the majority of those women candidates are Democratic candidates, which means that, and I'm speaking very broadly here because some of them are very left and very progressive, some of them are more centrist, but by and large, it means that These are candidates who, if they win, first of all, it's going to correct some representational deficiencies that are glaring and horrifying, and it's not going to fully correct them. Women are the majority population in this country, but are still hover under a quarter in um, not only federal legislative bodies, but in state legislatures, too. Right. So, again, even if all these women win, it's not going to get it to actual representation, but it's going to mean a significant step up from the kind of 21 to 23 percent ghetto that the women have been in. So there'll be an actual representational change. I believe there is value in that by itself. We need to have, that's what the revolution was about. We need to have governing bodies that represent the population if we claim to have anything like a representative democracy. And we simply don't have that at this moment. And it matters that a lot of the women candidates who've been running and winning primaries are not just women, they're women of color. Um, so, So the representational change is valuable in and of itself. 
it is true that there are lots of women politicians who legislate on behalf of and in defense of a white capitalist patriarchy, um, you know, from the right and from uh, very far right wing politics. So I'm not making an argument that just having more women gets us more better feminist policy or better progressive policy or better anti-racist policy or better economic policy. However, in this election, if there's a blue wave, it's going to be a blue wave. And a lot of the young candidates who are running and a lot of the first time women candidates are very progressive candidates. So you may actually see if they were put in a position where they could enact policy changes, you could see policy changes, you know, around, and this is deep into the future, I'm now projecting, right, if we continue to build a coalition, um, a representative coalition, you could begin to see shifts that would materially change aspects of power imbalances, whether that means rises in, in minimum wage, minimum wage workers, the majority of them are, are women, whether it means changes in paid leave policy, whether it means um, investing better in social safety nets, whether it means um, better protecting and expanding women's reproductive rights. Um, these are all policies that would be particularly good for women and for non-white Americans in ways that would be corrective to some of the imbalances on which this country and its policies and its, and its institutions and its government and its, and its economic basis has been built. And Rebecca, in looking at that potential for political change, as you looked historically, so kind of looking back, but equally looking forward, are, are you hopeful? I mean, when you see, when you look at the arc of change um, and the arc that, that of, of what progressive anger um, can do politically, um, are you hopeful about where we are going? Or do you feel like, well, you know, there, there's a, a, another brick wall, you know, two, three, you know, four steps down the line? I am both. I am both hopeful and despondent. Well, I wouldn't say I'm despondent. I'm, I'm practically aware of the impediments in front of progressive change. If you look, for example, at the Supreme Court, um, this president, um, having run on promises that were openly uh, misogynistic, xenophobic, um, racist, cruel, has the opportunity to alter the makeup of the court and shift um, a, a court that's going to shape law for, you know, the next generation. And the chances, even whatever happens with Kavanaugh or the next candidate that Donald Trump nominates, the chances that we're going to get out of this without having Anthony Kennedy's seat on the Supreme Court um, filled by a hard right reactionary who's going to do incredible structural damage um, to voting rights, uh, workers' rights, women's rights, civil rights. You know, the chances of that are very slim. And that means that I will likely end my life fighting for some measure, by some measures, to get back to where we were legally when I started, when I was born. That can be very daunting. And that is the part that's not hopeful, right? We are in the midst of a backlash that is going to set up severe structural roadblocks to progressing to something closer to a more equal union. At the same time, the fact that there is broad and mass fury and recognition of and that these that these actions are being made visible for what they are, because this has been a long, slow pro process that's been underway for many years in the United States, and we've been reluctant to look at it straight and understand it for what it is. 
as I said, the gift of the Donald Trump administration is that it's made it all visible. And we have a mass of Americans who are enraged about it and who in various ways are energized about fighting back against it. And as we know from our history, the times when we have made transformative political and social change have been when those mass movements have become energized and willing to do the work and the organizing and the thinking and the creative um, process of moving forward despite the obstacles. And so for that, I am hopeful. I am, you know. Um, oh, it, it feels I that think, way. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yep. Yes. Well, we've had... We've had obstacles, structural impediments before, and and sometimes after decades of fighting, yeah. they have been, if not wholly overcome, then significantly altered and bettered. And we can do it again, but it requires the engagement, participation, and the and the active work of so many Americans. And up until very recently, there had been a kind of somnambulance, uh, an apathy that had set in, in part because we'd absorbed these messages that there was no longer anything to be angry about. Well, now it's been made clear that there is something to be angry about. I hope it's being made clear that there's actually always long been something to be angry about um, and that many of many Americans were asleep at the wheel. <laughs> but regardless, the, 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 ener- the energy and engagement of so many women and men who perhaps because they are feeling angry are being drawn into the process of civic education and civic participation means that there's a chance that we make this better. I don't know if you have hit onto that nerve or you are documenting what you have seen and and going on in our society and around us, but whichever direction it is, you've done both. Mm -hmm. It's complicated. The way that you also outline the conflicts between, you know, the the questions of race and, you know, Frederick Douglass and and Susan Anthony and uh, Elizabeth Stanton back in the, you know, in the 1800s and the conflicts between the race versus women, women versus women, left versus right, as you talked about very briefly earlier in this conversation. It's not simple. And you really outline, um, you know, the line and it's not a straight line. It illuminates and, and you know, maybe that's a, a short-sighted, you know, failing on, on my part that I, I haven't been sufficiently woke. It shines a light on so many of the different challenges, and, and I just think it changes the way one can interpret what's going on. It's a powerful book. It, it will surely really strike a chord in our society, I believe so. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you for the time. I really appreciate the conversation. Yeah, me too. It was great. I appreciate it. Take care. That was my conversation with Rebecca Traster. Want more from Rebecca? A reminder to sign up for my free newsletter at chrisreback.com. It has bonus insights and more. My thanks to Rebecca for the conversation and you for listening. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon.